Well, good morning. Good morning. I'd like to invite you to open God's Word to Hebrews uh, chapter 6. We find ourselves stepping back into our series in Hebrews after several weeks off for Easter and Palm Sunday, as well as last week, our 50th anniversary. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to be back here. But I have to admit, um, I did something really foolish uh, but starting about a month ago. I knew I was uh, uh, scheduled to take the next section of Hebrews after what Matt preached. And so, you know, I just said, oh, okay, well, let's take a look at it. And I opened up my Bible and looked at what Matt preached, looked at the next section, and I got really excited. Uh, there's times in a preacher's life when you look at a passage and you just know right away, I know what I'm going to preach. And I was excited. I, the passage is one I love. And, and so I started thinking about it in my head and started processing it and, and over the weeks and, and started doing a little bit of research. And then when I sat down to do my formal study, looked at the preaching schedule, and I realized I made a giant mistake. I assumed that we were splitting Hebrews 6 into two sermons. We're splitting it into three. And everything I was excited about was next week's text. Now, don't feel bad for me, because I still benefited from the study. But I tell you, at the moment I realized that, first of all, I, my heart sank. I was sad because I, I just loved what I'd been studying. Then I was discouraged, because, and a little distraught, because the passage I'm looking at today, four verses, I had just kind of skimmed over. They didn't stand out to me. And when I looked at them, just initially, I was like, what in the world am I going to say? And, and, and here's what I love about the Word of God. There is not one part of God's Word that's not valuable for us. That's right. Amen. And at times when we look at something and say, just skim over it, there's not one part of God's Word that we ought to skim over. And that's what I love about how we do expository preaching here. We preach through a whole book of the Bible. That means we don't get to skim over any portion. It doesn't mean we get to skip every portion. And there's so much value in that. And I found in these four verses that I initially foolishly skimmed over, I found so much value here. In fact, I, I, I found myself realizing a way of thinking about salvation that I'd never thought about before. And I'm just excited to, to share this with you this morning. So to start with... Um, Boy, it's been so long. Let's just remember Hebrews a little bit. Let's refresh our memory on it. Uh, Hebrews, the whole point of Hebrews, as we began our, our study of this book, when we went to Hebrews 10, we saw the point of Hebrews is that the reader might have a clearer vision of Jesus, that we might cling to Jesus, that we might endure in our faith, regardless of what we experience. We don't know much about the writer of Hebrews. The writer doesn't introduce himself to us, although we know that he was a leader in the early church. He had seen the resurrected Jesus, that he had, um, was very familiar with the Torah. And we know that he is writing to Jewish believers, people who had recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, and they, they were experiencing alienation from their communities, communities ostracization. They, they, were, they were experiencing persecution, and some of them might have been tempted to turn back to Judaism, to their former ways, and say, you know what, never mind about this Jesus and all that. Let's go back to Judaism. 
And so Hebrews has several warnings throughout it. Last, not last week, four weeks ago, Matt opened up the first part of Hebrews 6 where we saw the third warning so far. Now, warning people not to turn back to former things. Uh, last week, we, uh, I keep, I'm going to keep saying last week because I'm so used to it. Last time in Hebrews, we saw that it contained a serious warning, in fact, about the consequences of turning away from Christ and that the danger of apostasy is real and it's terrifying. So we'll spend a little bit more time reviewing that previous sermon because today's passage is so tied to it, I want it to be very fresh in our minds. But what I'd like to do first is pray, ask God for his help in our time in God's word. And then I'm going to read verse 1 all the way through today's text, verse 12, okay? So we will refresh our memory. Let's, let's pray. God, we are, we are so thankful to be here this morning. We are so thankful to you that we can gather as a congregation to, to glorify you and to worship you, to know you. God, it's especially true on a, a beautiful day like this where I look outside, I look at creation. Uh, there's that realization that when we don't harden our hearts, we can see that there is clearly a creator. We can see that there is something greater than us that created all this. But if we are only left to observing nature, God, we wouldn't know much about you. We'd be left to our imaginations. And so how thankful we are, God, that you revealed yourself to us that you desired to have relationship with us, that you desired for us to know you and to be known by you. And so, God, you gave us your word so that we might study it and know who you are and what it means to, to know you, what it means to love you. And so, God, as we open up Hebrews chapter 6 today, God, this is my prayer that we would see you more clearly, that you would correct perhaps areas of wrong thinking, and if there are areas in our life where we are straying for you, from you or messing around with the wrong things, that, God, you would correct our paths. And so, God, use this time this morning. Work through me. Work through your word. Work in our hearts. We trust you to do this. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and read our passage today. Hebrews chapter 6, starting from verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him in up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. That's our previous text. You see the dire warning there. It should cause you to perk up a little bit. Pay attention. And now we come to our verses today. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. 
For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there is our text today. And as we look at this, today's passage brings this message of hope and assurance to the strong warning that we previously saw. And and what we see here is the author of Hebrews, his purpose is not to leave the readers in this state of fear, of hopelessness, but instead to to lead us to a place of enthusiastic endurance that, that is found in our assurance. He wants us to have a a strong, sound assurance in our salvation. And so as we look at this, I do want to take a little bit more time than normal to remember what we learned last time in verses 1 through 8. Because this is a passage of Scripture that, that is very easy to misunderstand. It's very easy to read our worldview into it. And and to think that maybe this is a passage that's preaching that believers can lose their salvation. It's certainly a strong warning to us. It's It's a warning to those that would walk away. But what is the writer of Hebrews saying? Well, Hebrews 6 gives us the third warning in Hebrews. He's been looking at all these elements of Judaism, the foundations of Judaism that pointed to Christ. And he's been showing how Christ is the one that these things point to, and therefore Christ is greater than these things. And in the history of Israel, if they were punished for disobeying these lesser things, how much greater is the punishment if we disobey Jesus? So there's been these warnings coming up. In this third warning, he's looking at the Levitical priesthood. Who were the Levitical priesthood? Well, they were the ones that that operated the temple in Israel, and there was this high priest, and he would make sacrifice for the people's sin. But one of the things that the writer of Hebrews points out is that this high priest, before he made sacrifices for everyone's sin, he had to first make sacrifice for his own sin. Why? Well, he was just a a regular guy. He was a fallible human. He sinned. And so he would make sacrifice for himself first, then sacrifice on behalf of the people But here's the thing, that sacrifice couldn't pay for sin. All it could do is cover sin, pointing to the need of a greater sacrifice. And therefore, they had to keep doing it year after year after year. And the writer of Hebrews comes along and shows how Jesus, he's a a better priest. He provides a better sacrifice, a sacrifice that is once and for all because he's a better priest because he had no sin. He doesn't have to make sacrifices for himself. And therefore, the sacrifice he offered God on our behalf is permanent. And one of the things that the the writer wants us to see then is that if we turn away from Jesus, who's the only source of our atonement, we have nothing else to turn to. To turn back to Judaism then would lead to certain damnation. There's no other salvation apart from Jesus. So there's warning here. Don't turn away from Jesus. Now, the, the author looks at all these other elements to build his arguments. He looks at these elementary teachings and other doctrines mentioned in verses 1 and through 2. These are all references to common Jewish beliefs, things that were good and true, but they, they lacked a knowledge of Jesus as Messiah. They were things that a Pharisee would believe. 
And, and they're good things, but to, to turn away from Jesus and to go back to them could not be done without saying, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. He goes on and he shows how people within the Christian community who leave were never true believers. But rather, we see in verses 4 through 7 that they had participated in Christian community, that they had intellectually recognized at one point that Jesus was the Messiah, that they had tasted the blessings of God's promises, that they had seen the Holy Spirit work. One of the things we have to remember, this is written to a group. So when the writer talks about, for instance, that they had experienced the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean that they were personally indwelled by the Holy Spirit. They were just part of this community that was being blessed by the Holy Spirit. They had tasted the goodness of God's word. They had seen signs of the age to come. And to turn away from those things would essentially be saying that their forefathers were right to crucify Jesus. They were, in a sense, re-crucifying Jesus. And so the author says that it would be impossible for them to come back to God. And we saw that he uses the word impossible in a literal way. He's not speaking figuratively. He's not speaking in the sense of, like, it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Every time the writer of Hebrews uses the word impossible, he uses it four times. It's all in things that are actually impossible. So this was a very strong warning to us. Last time, Matt concluded this text by saying, those who are truly saved, who have been regenerated by the Spirit, will persevere, but perseverance is not optional. Those truly saved will bear fruit. And this is a warning to the people of the church to genuinely inspect their faith and say, am I bearing fruit? Am I persevering? So, so it's, a, it's a big warning. It should cause you to pay attention. And now that he has spoken this and gotten everybody's attention, the author now moves to a softer position, let's say. He moves to a position of hope because he doesn't want to leave his readers in that hopeless state of fear. He desires them to move to a place of assurance of salvation that leads to enthusiastic endurance. Let's take a look at that. On your notes there, we're moving to this. A word of hope section, looking at verses 9 and 10. Let's look at 9 and 10 and see how the author shifts to a word of hope and confidence in his readers. He says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. In other words, as we break this down, he's confident in better things for his readers. And the reason for this is because God is not unjust. Now what we see here in the softening is one, he goes from serious warning but points out hope. He refers to his readers as beloved or literally loved ones. It's the only time in Hebrews he refers to the readers as beloved. And this warning that he's given, it, it, it's a response of his love for them. When you love somebody, you, you warn them of danger, right? And so he's warning the people of danger. He doesn't want them to walk this road towards apostasy and wavering in their faith. But, but he has hope in them and he looks at some evidence. What evidence does he look at? Well, he sees signs of spiritual life. He looks to their fruit. He looks at the work that they've done and are continuing to do and he sees these people not as that dry, cursed land in verse 8 that bears thorns and thistles, but he sees them as that, that land that produces fruit and is blessed in verse 7. But the author makes a very interesting statement that a lot of commentators don't even comment on. 
I looked at that, I found it to be a striking statement. The author of Hebrews points to God's justice as he looks at their insurance, and he applies that it would be unjust of God not to remember their work. That's really strange. You might look at that and say, wait a second, is now the author of Hebrews teaching some sort of works-based salvation? Or is he implying that when you do God's work, somehow God is in your debt? And he has to remember these things that you've earned? Well, I think it's an easy verse to misunderstand, and it leads us to a good principle of reading God's word, is that you never read just a verse. You read a verse within the surrounding context. You look at the passage. You don't just look at the passage, you look at the whole book. You don't just look at the book, you, you keep in mind all of Scripture. And some things that we need to remember here, first of all, Hebrews is consistent and clear that salvation comes through faith. So this statement is not promoting a works-based salvation. Hebrews, number two, Hebrews as well as other scripture points to God working within us as the source of our ability to do good works. In fact, at the very end of Hebrews, there's this closing prayer. And one of the things that the author says is, he says, may God equip you with every good, everything good that you may do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom glory, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, it's where's my ability to do good come from? It's God working in me. So, so this is in line with other scripture uh, where we see the same thing. True faith develops good works. But it's not my ability, not my strength doing these things. It's God working in me. It's Christ in me. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. So here's what the writer is saying here when he says it would, that God is not unjust to forget the good works that we've done, the love that we've shown for his name. In essence, the writer is not pointing to these works to say God owes you. Rather, he's pointing to the works to say that God, what God started in working in you in order to glorify him, he will continue to do because his justice means that he won't abandon the glory of his name. He won't abandon you. Why? Glory of his name. Let's take a look at that. On your study sheet, God remembering their actions not based on in the value of their accomplishments, it's based in the value of God's name. What does that mean to, to show love for someone's name? Does that mean they were in love with a word? You showed love for my name? What would that mean? Does that mean you just really, really like the name Tyler? Well, no, it means you care about my reputation. You care about my honor, right? And, and to love God's name means you love God's honor. You love God's reputation. You care about how he has seen his glory. And, and here's something that's really cool. God's glory and honor has the highest value in all creation. And God's justice, because that has the highest value, God's justice means he will always uphold his glory, his honor, his reputation, his name. Think about it this way. Because God's glory is the highest value and the highest good, the greatest thing, the most righteous thing that I can do is live for God's glory. And because God's glory is the greatest good, 
the greatest thing, the most righteous thing that God can do is live for his glory. It is the ultimate good. And in fact, the cool thing about scripture is constantly it points to the fact that when God makes promises to us, he bases it on the honor of his name. For instance, Psalm 143, verse 11, the psalmist says, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, same word as justice, bring my soul out of trouble. Another God, God, you save me in order to protect your reputation, your name. In fact, when we come to next week's text, verse 13, we're going to see God makes promises to Abraham. And what does he base his promise on? He swears by himself, by his reputation, by his honor, by his glory. There's nothing else better to swear by. Nothing else that is more valuable. So one of the things we need to understand that God always honors his name. And this is an act of his righteousness and justice. And two, we need to remember, where does my ability to live for God's name come from? It comes from God himself. So what the author is saying is, because you have evidence in this of this in your life, because you have shown good works, because you've demonstrated the ability that you are living for God's name, for his honor, this means that God is working through you, and because he's always going to uphold his name, he's not going to forget you. He's not going to abandon you. It would be unjust because it would be, mean that God is ignoring his glory. It's not unjust to you, it's unjust to God. It brings to my mind Philippians 1.6 where Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of the Lord Jesus. Why will God bring that work to completion? Why is he faithful in bringing that to completion? Who is he faithful to? He begins a work in you. Who is he being faithful to? Well, he's being faithful to you, but what is the ultimate object of his faithfulness? It's himself. He began a good work in you for his glory, and he's faithful to that principle, and he will complete it. You think about it this way, if I might use an analogy. Let's say somebody makes you the manager of the Mariners organization. What is your top priority as the manager of the Mariners organization? To live for the good of the team, to do things that are for the benefit of the team, Right? Everything you do should be for the benefit of the team. That's your highest priority. Let's say you have a tremendous batting coach, and he, everybody he works with, their batting average goes up. In fact, your whole team's batting average is up, and this guy's doing a great job. But let's say you have a nephew who also wants to be a batting coach, not very good at it, but you decide, I'm going to put my, my nephew in, and I'm going to replace the good batting coach. Is that just? No, it's not just because you're putting the priority of your family over the priority of what you were hired for, the good of the team. It's not good for the team. Likewise, God doesn't abandon us because the reason he's working with us is to glorify himself. And to abandon us would be to abandon his priority. Let's continue the analogy. Let's now say, okay, you're a good coach. You keep the good batting coach or you're a good manager. You keep that good batting coach. But does that mean you just simply retain the person? Well, no, you continue to develop them, right? For the good of the team, what are you going to do? You're going to make sure that this batting coach receives training. You're going to send him to seminars and workshops. You're going to make sure he has the equipment he needs. You're going to give him the funding he needs. In other words, 
because your priority is the good of the team, you have a reason to pour into this guy and make sure that he thrives as a batting coach. Likewise, because God has redeemed us for his glory, it's in God's interest and part of the justice to his glory that he continues to cause us to endure. What he starts in us, he will continue. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is after. He's looking at the fruit of the people and he's saying, this is evidence of God's work in you and the justice of God means he will continue working in you because otherwise it wouldn't be just to his main priority. Now, the other cool part about this is the very fact that they have faith. Faith itself glorifies God because when a person looks to God, faith itself basically says that God is the most trustworthy source of our salvation. God is the most trustworthy person in the universe that there's nowhere else I can turn to. So just the act of faith is glorifying God is that which is most trustworthy. And therefore, because God is true to his glory, he honors faith. He will never turn away faith. Now, there's another really interesting element here. As I began to think about how justice applies to assurance is that there's also an element of God's justice that's directed to Jesus. It's directed at the work of Jesus. When, when it comes to salvation, we do not need to fear having an arbitrary God. Let me put it this way. Many, many other religions, works-based religions, always have this idea that I'm going to do all this stuff and, and I'm going to work really hard. And at the end of the day, I'm going to stand before God, whatever God that is, and, and I hope that God lets me in to his paradise. I hope my good outweighs the bad. And what's interesting, when you talk to people who, who view God in this way, for instance, I, I um, connect a lot with Muslim people, um, really enjoy my conversations there. And one of the things I've noticed is they believe that if you, you can live a great life, you can do all sorts of good things, but you never are sure if you're in with God until you stand before me, lets you in. He might say, no, you're not in. And you know, I think it's very possible that you could look at the previous passage and say, you know, I wonder, what is my faith genuine? Might I stand in God's presence? And maybe he'll just say, nope, you're not part of my plan. I, I, I don't know you. Well, let's think about that. Is God arbitrary? Well, he's not. As we think about salvation... And we think about God's justice. Oftentimes we think about justice as being the basis of God's condemnation, or the basis of our condemnation, I should say. After all, God has these just righteous requirements. He says, here is how you are to live and, and what it means to be right with me. And if you follow these requirements perfectly, you're in. You're accepted by me. Of course, the human condition means that we can't actually follow those requirements. We always fall short. And therefore, God's just requirements becomes our condemnation. And so then we might think, well, God's mercy then is the basis of salvation. And certainly God's mercy is part of salvation. But I want you to see this. God's justice is part the basis of our condemnation. But God's justice is also the basis of our salvation. And here's what I mean by that. In his mercy, God sent Jesus, his son, to come to earth and live a life that we couldn't, to become the representative of the human race. And he fulfilled every one of those righteous requirements that God had perfectly. 
In other words, if you are looking at the law as a contract, he fulfilled his end of the contract. And therefore, God in his justice and his righteousness had to accept what Jesus had done. And the Bible says this, that when I put my trust in Jesus as my Savior, when I recognize him as the only source of salvation, then I am in Christ. This exchange happens. Everything that I've done wrong, all my condemnation is credited to him, and all of Jesus' righteousness is credited to me. So then when it comes to that day that you stand before God, God will not be arbitrary because in his justice, what he's looking at is not whether you've done enough. He's looking at the righteousness of Christ. See, it's very weird to think about it this way. But in a sense, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says it would be unjust of God to turn you away. It would not be unjust directed at you. It would be unjust towards Jesus because he fulfilled the requirements. That's the amazing thing about salvation. We don't have to wonder, am I in? The Bible calls for faith in Jesus and that alone. And we don't have to fear an arbitrary God saying, you know, yeah, I said that, but I don't quite. No, you, you go away. No, God is just and righteous And Jesus fulfilled his righteous requirements. What an incredible thing to see the justice of God and the mercy of God wed together that gives us assurance. Now, as we look at this passage then, this is what the author wants his readers to see. You might say, okay, then how do I know that I'm in Christ? And and thankfully the Bible doesn't leave us wondering what that looks like. The Bible gives several passages in it to say, this is what it looks like to be in Christ. This is what you should expect to see. This is how you can have assurance to know that, that your faith you have is genuine, that you really are trusting in Jesus. And what the author looks at in Hebrews, he looks at his readers' signs of spiritual life. And he sees evidence of God working there. And he sees the continuing evidence, the ongoing evidence. And so there's two areas. We'll look at a few other passages. This week in your community groups, you'll look at some passages. But, but there's two areas that we can look at specifically just in these four verses where you can kind of say, Do, does this look like me? Am I bearing this fruit? One of them is that we see a love for God's name. The other is that we see people serving God's saints. Let me ask you this. Do you love God's name? Ask yourself, am I living for God's name? Whose glory and worth am I focused on, mine or God's? You know, one of the interesting things to me is that if you are in Christ, then Christ will be working in your heart to love and value the things that he loves and values. If Christ loves God's name, guess what should be true in your life if he's working in your heart? You should be growing in your love for God's name. I give you Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 15. You'll look at that this week. It's the Lord's Prayer. His disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he said, okay, this is how you should pray. And what's very interesting, the very first part of his prayer is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sometimes we can gloss over that and treat it just like, oh, this is some sort of greeting, right? Or opening statement. Actually, this is the very first request of his prayer. God, Hallowed be your name. What does it mean to hallow one's name? 
It means to set it apart. It means to lift it up, to make it famous. Jesus' first request in his prayer is, God, I want your name lifted up. I want your fame to increase. I want your glory to increase. I think it's notable that it's the very first thing Jesus starts with in his prayer because it's the primary thing. So in my life, do I, do I think about God's name? Do I live for his glory? Do I make decisions based on his reputation? And friends, let me tell you this. There is nothing in this world you can invest in that has better payoff than investing in the name of God. Because one day you will stand in God's presence with his full glory revealed, and you will not for one moment regret any of the time you spent investing in glorifying his name. Every other investment we make will fade away. It's the only sure one. That is financial advice for you. I always watch those YouTube videos. They say, this is not financial advice. This is life advice for you. The second part is, how do I value God's community? Do I love and serve God's saints? If Christians bear his name, do I show love and honor them? Do I love the church? Do I love others in God's family? Yes, we're made up of a bunch of messy people. We're messy people. We can be hard to love. We make mistakes. We sin. We're hypocrites. But do we love the bride of Christ? I find it so interesting as I look at Jesus' prayer in John 17, his high priestly prayer, I see a couple things. First of all, he says, God, I've made your name known. I've glorified you. And then he prays on behalf of his followers. He shows incredible love for his followers, for his people. And then he says something that's very interesting. The third part of his prayer, he talks about us. And one of the things he says is, how we love each other is one of the ways the world will see if God is true. And they'll, they'll glorify him based on how we treat each other. Do you love the name of God? Do you love God's people? These are some just very simple ways to evaluate your faith. I put this as an aside. Christian community is necessary for demonstrating spiritual life. As you look at lists of, of spiritual fruit this week in your community groups, you'll look at Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. You'll look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, you know, it's interesting. All those things they talk about, they're really hard to really evaluate unless you're in community. Let's take patience, for example. If you're by yourself, you probably think you're a pretty patient person, right? We, we don't know if we're patient until we're surrounded by other people. We need community, not only to evaluate these things, but to grow in these things and to sharpen each other and to refine one another. Listen, my friends, it is so easy to fake this stuff. It's so easy to hang around Christians, learn the lingo, say things that make you sound very pious, pretend you don't know when people are watching when you know that they are. But the consequence of faking it isn't that you might get found out by people. It's that God knows your heart. And one day you will stand before him. And those who stand before God and fake it He's going to say, I never knew you. We'll look at Matthew 7 this week, the passage where people, Jesus talks about people coming and saying, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all this stuff in your name? His response, I never knew you. And he calls them workers of lawlessness. They were evoking the name. It's possible to evoke the name without loving the name. It's possible to evoke the name while loving yourself and serving yourself. 
And, and you see, this is a thing where I don't look around and evaluate other people. This is for you to evaluate your own heart before God and say, what's the reason I'm doing these things? What's the reason I'm hanging out in this Christian community? Am I doing this for my reputation? Am I doing it for my position? Am I doing it for something else? Or am I doing it because I truly love you, God? And the whole purpose of this warning is to lead you to that place, to evaluate your heart. Now let's look at this section, responding to God's word. I love this element of it. The, the author wants his readers to have assurance. What does assurance lead to? Assurance of salvation should lead to earnest pursuit of God, not sluggishness or sin. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. In other words, you endure how other people before you endured. You demonstrate that this is true in your life the way that other people have Sometimes assurance of salvation is attacked because people believe it would lead to greater sin as if, you know, you say a prayer and and you know that you're in and so you can just live your life however you want. What's to keep you from sinning? Well, the answer to that is Christ in you. If you are truly saved, if you have true faith, if you didn't just pray a prayer and repeat words somebody said, but you literally, you truly had true trust of Jesus, then Jesus, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And he begins a process of working in your heart and changing those things that you desire, giving you new affections. True faith does not lead to lawlessness. True faith leads to a desire to honor God's name more and more. I'm not saying we're perfect. We fail. But there should be a trajectory where we're, we're, we're moving more and more towards God, desiring more and more to glorify God. And you take 2 Peter 1, for example, you'll look at, Peter says the way to confirm your calling is, is by seeing, am I growing in my knowledge? Am I growing in my godliness? In the gospel, Jesus says his followers will obey his commands. In fact, after that warning of saying, I never knew you, he goes into talking about two houses, one built on the rock, one built on the sand. The house built on the rock is the house that hears the voice of Jesus and they obey his words. The other one is the one that hears the voice of Jesus and does not obey. There's this idea of there's obedience in the true heart of the believer. In Hebrews, we see the expectation the believer will persevere. In James, we see that faith without works is dead because faith will produce works. So the biblical understanding of assurance of salvation leaves really no room for me just sinning more and more and more. So assuring the readers of their standing with God is intended them, intended to encourage them to pursue God with earnestness, to pursue God more and more and more. See, this is a call to hold on to Christ and take pursuing him seriously. There's never a moment in your life where you're like, you know, I did enough of that. I don't have to do any more. Whether you're, you're five or a hundred, there's not one moment in your life where you say, you know, I did a Bible study a few years ago. I don't need to study God's word anymore. No, keep pursuing God. Keep producing fruit. Keep demonstrating the trueness of your faith. You know, previously we, we talked about salvation in this way, that salvation kind of has three, three aspects to it. There's an aspect of salvation that I was saved when I put my trust in Jesus, that, that I turned away and all of those sins that I'd done, all my, 
all, all, all this stuff, this condemnation was taken away from me. But then there's an element of salvation today. I am being saved. Jesus is working in me today. Every day I need Jesus. And there's a future element of salvation that someday I will be ultimately saved. I will be led into God's heaven. Now get this. There's three aspects of salvation, but we're not talking about three salvations. We're talking about one salvation. And it's not a biblical idea that somehow you can remove that middle portion and just say, I was saved. Live however I want. I will be saved. No, you see, salvation is holistic in our life. I was saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. So here's where I want to go with this today. Listen, if you at one time prayed a prayer and someone said that means you're saved, but you haven't seen any fruit in your life, you need to evaluate yourself. Did you really put your trust in God? Or did you just repeat words? If you are even sitting here right now realizing, you know, I think I've been faking it, you need to talk to somebody this week and get that right with God. Talk to your community group leader. If you don't have a community group, connect with me. Let's make an appointment. Let's sit down and talk. But for others in this room, I want to say this is an encouragement to you to continue persevering. Don't get lazy. Don't get sluggish. What a wonderful thing it is that that evidence of faith in your life is evidence that God has been working in you. And God is not unjust to forget you. God is not unjust to, to leave you alone. He will continue working in your life to endurance. What a privilege. What an honor. Be growing. Continue growing. Pursue God. Let's go ahead and stand. And I'd love to pray for you in these things as we are dismissed. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful again for this time together in your word. And and God, I thank you for the value of your name. I thank you that you are the most valuable one, that your glory is the most important thing, and that you, you stay true to your promises because it's based in your reputation and your glory. God, I know if it was based in how lovable I am that I'm sunk. And I know that's true on behalf of every person listening right now. But God, your, your promises to us are not based in our, our lovability, not based in how smart we are, how well we've done. They're based in you. And God, to know that you and your justice and righteousness will always stay true to that principle, that you will always protect your glory. Indeed, if you've started a work in us, you will complete it because you will not abandon your glory. God, that is such an incredible thing. And I'd pray today that as we in this room take time this week, I pray to evaluate where we stand with you, that we would do so from a place of hope and, and assurance that we've placed our trust in Christ, in Christ alone. So God, I pray for that process and I pray if there's anybody here listening that maybe is realizing, man, I, I have been faking this. I don't have trust. I don't see fruit. I don't see this love of God's name in my life. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would make that right and they would turn to you and put their trust in you. That you would give them the boldness to even talk to somebody and say, hey, here's what's going on. Help me. God, I pray that you would cause us to be people that glorify your name this week as we go about wherever you have us going. 
in the way we interact with others and what we invest our time in, what we invest our passion and resources into, God, may we glorify you and your great name. And so we pray this, knowing that we need your strength to do it. We pray the name of Jesus and through your spirit. Amen.